Today we're going to include into the field of awareness, of mindfulness, one very important mental factor. And it's the factor which is most intimately bound up with the whole workings of the law of karma, that is the workings of the law of cause and effect. Meaning that every action we do brings a certain result, whether good or bad. But it's not primarily the action which causes the result, but the volition behind the action. The state of mind which is expressed in bodily activity is that mental volition which is at the center of karma. So it becomes very important to be mindful of our volitions as they arise and pass away. So we have some degree of freedom and choice as to whether we're going to give expression to these volitions or not. Volition means intention to do something. The body by itself does not act. The body is the body's like a living corpse. It's just it's just elements of matter working. We'll get into it. Oh. When we're aware of volitions or intentions as they arise, we have this kind of freedom to decide whether or not we want to act upon it. But as you saw in observing thoughts, very often we're well into a thought before we're aware that we're thinking. And in all that, in all that beginning period of time, while the thought is happening and we are unaware that we're thinking, it's like being in a state of sleep in a dreaming state. Something's going on in our minds and we don't know that it's going on. In the same way, when we're unmindful of intentions or volitions, the volition arises, the action follows it, all in a state of unawareness, of unmindfulness, of not knowing what it is that's happening. As a result, we live our lives very much in a mechanistic, conditioned way. Some intention arises, the body moves, and we're, we are unmindful. Just as an example which perhaps you can relate to. We don't speak without a preceding intention to speak. Generally, we're not aware of that intention. The intention comes and goes, the words come out, and we have no degree of mindfulness of how it's happening. It's very interesting to observe the process when we become mindful of the volition. In other words, you're standing or sitting, and all of a sudden you become aware, oh, intention to say something. In a very large percentage of cases, the simple awareness of that intention to speak makes one realize that what, was, what one was going to say is really not worth saying. A lot, of, a lot of useless talk falls away simply because we become aware 
on the on the volitional level before the act happens and it's that way with a lot of extraneous unnecessary actions of, of body and speech volition is very important learning to learning to become aware to be very mindful as soon as the intention arises <coughs> An intention arises to to take some food. We're unaware of it. It's arising in the mind like a thought. The intention is expressed in the hand moving through the refrigerator, stuffing the food into the mouth, all just like sleeping. As soon as we become aware, oh, intention to take food, being very mindful of the intention before it's expressed in action, at that moment, there's the freedom to decide whether or not it's really a skillful thing to do. If we're not mindful of the intention, there's no possibility of, of choosing whether or not one is going to act. The act follows automatically, very mechanically. So we become very much slaves to our past conditioning. However it is that, whatever it is that has conditioned our mind in the past to do certain things, it's all working very mechanically, intentions arising, bodily act, action happening, all very unaware. Okay. Right. As as we get into the practice and the ability of the mind to really pick up on the intention very clearly and very sharply. Sometimes we're aware of the intention in a vague way and we see it slipping into the action. You know, it's not that sharp mindfulness which is just watching the intention arise and pass away. But we're, we're still somewhat caught in it. So the conditioning is still there and we're still acting out it. But to the degree that we're mindful, there's that degree of purification process going on, okay? It's not that we become totally free and totally deconditioned at the first, at the first moment of mindfulness. It's a very gradual process. When we see ourselves acting in a certain way, we see it once and twice and a thousand times and a hundred thousand times. If we're seeing it, if we're observing it, slowly the strength of that conditioning is weakened. But every time you notice it, there's a little more detachment from that particular sequence. It's the same way that we're... This is a common experience in meditation, which relates to observing thoughts. When we start having, when we start having negative thoughts, the common conditioning is to condemn them. So, we have this feeling that negative thoughts of anger or greed or, or ill will are bad. So when thoughts come, there's a condemning. They come again and again and again. And each time we're a little bit mindful, there's a little less condemning. But as long as there's any reaction at all to them, they're going to still have some strength. As soon as we can observe our thoughts without any identification with them at all, without any judgment or evaluation. Just come and go, whether, whether it's anger or greed or 
loving thought, as soon as we are completely mindful of them, there's no power to disturb the mind. It does not matter what they are. But it takes a lot of observation. It takes this repeated effort at being mindful without reacting. Okay, intentions as far as the practice. We're going to do some of the walking meditation first. To go from sitting position to standing position, there has to be a preceding intention to do so. That mental volition becomes the cause of the body moving. If there's not a volition, the leg does not move, it stays right here. The practice is noticing, making a mental note of each intention preceding the movement, intending to stand or intending to move the leg and then the moving of the leg the moving of the leg becomes the meditation <coughs> intending to move this leg noting the intention the moving of the leg intending to stand up and then the standing so we become aware of the cause and effect relationship between the mind and the body the volition is the cause the body movement is the effect. We're standing. There's an intention to begin walking. The body by itself does not begin. There's always a preceding volition. We should become mindful of those, of those intentions. And then begin walking. In the walking meditation, there is no need to pick up the intention for each step. Once, once you begin the walking meditation, just be with the lifting and forward and pacing and lifting and forward and pacing. But when it comes time to stop, before stopping there will be a, an intention to stop. Note the intention. Then the stopping. Then the intention to turn and the turning. The intention to walk back to where you were sitting and the walking back. The intention to sit down and the whole sitting process. This is the beginning of the training in picking up these kinds of mental volitions which are happening all day long as determining factors in our, in our bodily activity. It's very crucial because this, it's just at that point that the whole question of karma revolves about. Okay? Revolves about our volitions to do things. The actions are secondary. In, the fir in, in one of the first verses of the Dhammapada, which is a, a collection of verses the, uh, of the Buddha, it says, mind is the forerunner of all things. But all actions of speech and of body begin in the mind, and they begin with the volition to do them. So it's a very, it's a very central factor to, to become mindful of. Are there any questions about what to do? Okay, we'll, we'll walk for about 10 minutes or so. Every movement should be made mindfully with the noticing of the previous intention to do it. Okay. So as you stand up, one other interesting point. Intention is not always a thought in the mind. 
It's not always words. It can be just a movement of the mind. Okay? You may not have words going on in the mind, I'm going to stand. But you can, you can experience the intention to do so. That movement of the mind which is charging the body to speak up. Be mindful of it. Be very aware of how it's working. Okay. Make the mental note intending, intending, and then standing, standing. A lot of insight and understanding develops into how the mind and body are working together. For those who are cultivating this practice as a regular discipline, it would be very valuable to include 20 minutes or half an hour of walking before each sitting. Not only is a lot understood in the walking itself, but it makes the sitting much deeper. Many people have gotten enlightened simply doing exactly what we were doing, walking up and back very mindfully because it puts the mind into a very great state of balance and with very great penetrative power. <coughs> if you have a place to walk that's convenient, it's better to walk back and forth rather than around because then you have a chance at each end to notice the intention to stop and the stopping, the intention to turn and the turning. One of the stages of insight along the path is precisely to see the cause and effect relationship between the mind and body. Sometimes the mind is the cause and bodily action is the effect, such as with intention and movement. Sometimes bodily sensations are the cause with a mental effect, such as pain, awareness of pain, then arises a desire to move. The pain is the cause, the desire is the fact, the effect. All that this is, this whole being, is merely a, a series of cause and effect processes going on. There's no one behind them. All impersonal processes. Through simply sitting back and observing, not projecting anything, not expecting anything, simply looking at what is happening, the entire nature of the mind-body is revealed. The way to understand who we are is to look. It's very simple. <coughs> Any questions about the walking? Well, just in reference to what you were saying, in just a few little times, I've done that being here, I've seen a little bit of that exhibit. I mean, the idea is not just to see it, it's an idea to see this continually over a period of time and have this strengthen or what what is it? What happens in the course of meditation is that there are a series of intuitive insights. That is, you're practicing, the mind is very silent, and all of a sudden you understand something. You know, not the result of some thought process, but just like an intuitive pleasure. That's what it's about. And there are a series of these, that's what it's about. Okay? The practice very much revolves about integrating these insights into our lives, which comes about through the, through the cultivation of moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. But as, I mean, as one of these has, that doesn't mean one stops doing that practice. Right? Absolutely not. 
because there is more to do and the whole practice is just living moment to moment with with awareness the goal the purpose of the meditation is to achieve a balance of mind enlightenment comes out of this balance and all the different techniques are merely ways of bringing the mind into a state of perfect equilibrium where all the factors of enlightenment are in are in balance there's there's wisdom and there's devotion and there's concentration and there's energy and there's very sharp awareness all perfectly poised and it's out of that mental poise very finely tuned that that the experience of nirvana can happen so it's the balance which we're striving for and this is this is the means it's through through the cultivation of mindfulness that balance happens this is the whole path this, it, from beginning to full enlightenment it's moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness there is no other secret teachings it's quite amazing how through the power of this mindfulness the Dharma unfolds it just all opens up the whole mind-body process just begins to open up In a period of training. Already, uh, I see the mind. Right, right. That's if I'm aware of every time, I'm stressed, smile. Right. Uh, in the beginning, the slowing down is a very important um, happening because you begin to see many more things involved in each process. When the mindfulness is developed, it goes at any speed. When my teacher used to go into the bazaar to go shopping, I couldn't keep up with him. He's a real speed freak, but very mindful. I mean, at every instant, exactly, exactly there, but really moving quickly, you know. Right, it's just, it's just for the period of training. You know, when you want to, when you want to learn to play a musical piece, if you start off playing quickly, you just reinforce all your mistakes. You keep on making the same mistakes over, conditioning yourself to keep on making them. If you practice slowly, you get the whole sequence right, very, very together. And with practice, you develop the speed, the ability to do it at proper speed. And it's the same, it's the same process going on. When you are doing really very mindful activity, you could take half an hour from walking to this wall to that wall really getting into the minute details of what it is that's happening the mind gets very concentrated very penetrating you you see a lot that normally we don't see because we're moving so quickly but it, it's for the purposes of training the mind any other questions uh, as i was walking i, I felt that i had the time to intend each step. And as I did that, over a period of time, I kind of felt very powerful. I felt like I could do anything. So sort of, I mean, I'm going to put my foot right there, and then I'm going to put my foot right there. Every time I succeeded in my intention. Uh, is that an inappropriate feeling? Somehow it feels egotistical to feel like powerful. Yeah. If you're being mindful, 
of the, the movement and the intention for each step. And then that feeling arises, that feeling should become the object of meditation. Oh, feeling powerful. Not identity. It's not I who am feeling powerful. It's merely a feeling arises, arising because of certain causes. So that too becomes just a pe- part of the passing show. And then back to the intention and back to the movement. In other words, there is absolutely no corner to back yourself into from which you're observing everything else. Because the very corner becomes the object of meditation and you see that as impermanent. Not to identify either with the process of mind, of intending or, or thinking and bodily movement, or with any reaction to it. If the reaction is just another mental process. It's interesting when, when you practice this walking. In the beginning it feels as if you really have to you're really keeping the mind right on top of that movement, you know, that attitude of mind. To practice, you begin to experience that if you very gently keep the attention on the feet, automatically the, the, the knowing arises. There's no effort we have to make <coughs> to know the object. If the attention is there, the knowing happens automatically. And all of a sudden you feel, it's like the two catch up to one another in your mind, although they are always happening simultaneously. And then there's this great feeling of freedom in the sense that whatever you do, you're aware that you can be mindful of it at any speed. And I've been walking around the route of the monastery in India, really this very slow, very great effort to stay right there. And all of a sudden, it's one of those in- intuitions where so that it was, it was going to happen together and no special effort had to be made. And I started just running around the room, you know, and quite amazed that the mindfulness was right there at every moment. These are the kinds of, of opening, <coughs> openings that, that begin to happen as you practice more and more. You know, you see how things are working but it takes continuous application. Okay, in the sitting, we'll sit for about 20 minutes. Be aware of the breathing, of the sitting posture in between the out-breath and the in-breath, if there's a gap. Sensations in the body when the mind is called to them. Be very mindful of the fact that you're thinking as soon as a thought arises, not getting involved in the content, or evaluating or judging, simply making a mental note, thinking, 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 and watching the thoughts come and go. Intentions are not predominant when you're sitting unless there's some volitional activity that you're doing. For example, if you, if you swallow, there's an intention to swallow before the swallowing happens. It should be noted. If you're going to straighten your back, there's a preceding intention to straighten. It should be noted. If you want to scratch, there's an intention to scratch before the arm moves. If there's a a shift of position of the legs, there's always the preceding volition to do it. You will see that if you're very mindful of these intentions, you can watch them arise and pass away without them giving expression to action. If you have an itch and an intention arises to scratch, Oh, intending, intending. The intention comes and goes. The arm stays where it is. Okay? There's not that automatic 
bodily response to these volitions if we're mindful. <coughs> Any questions about what to do? If if the mind is drawn to any bodily sensation at all, that becomes the object. At that time, you're not with the breathing. The mind is very relaxed and just observing the flow of sensations. Okay? Relax behind the pain, painting, 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 without judging it, without expecting it to go away, without condemning it, without feeling aversion, simply being very aware of what it is that's happening. And you'll see that it's in flow. It's not one thing. It's a process of sensations arising and, and vanishing. And then when it, it ceases to be predominant, again back to the breathing. The breathing is the anchor. It's the primary object. When there's nothing much happening, or nothing is very predominant, again back to the breath. Are you saying then that the, the first few times you should be aware of the intention and just let it rise and fall when you feel that you're going to die if you don't scratch that's the point at which you notice the intention and then the subsequent action also um, in breathing not at all just let it come exactly as it will. Generally, in the course of a sitting, it will slow down by itself. But it doesn't matter because it's not a breathing exercise. It's an exercise in mindfulness. So however it comes, just to be aware of it. But if it is slowing by itself, there should be that awareness. Pain is a very powerful object of meditation. And there are many techniques which purposely induce pain simply because it's a very noticeable object. The mind doesn't wonder very much when there's pain. But you have to have very much the attitude of relaxing behind it. In other words, if the mind is struggling with it, you get very tense. Okay, so if there's a painful feeling, just relax the whole system, relax the mind, and be very attentive to the process of what's happening. It is a flow of unpleasant sensations. It's not one thing. It's many sensations arising and passing away, all unpleasant. <laughs> There should be no condemning, no expectation. I'm meditating on it and it should disappear. That's just a, a tension-causing attitude. Let it, let it play out however it will. Sometimes it gets stronger, sometimes it disappears. We have no control over that. The idea is to keep the mind balanced and observing it. Not identifying with it. Not, the pain is not I and it's not self and it's not mine. It's merely tension. <coughs> One thing is not to think in terms of bodily parts. It's not, the knee is a concept. All that is there is the sensation. Okay? It's not the knee that's there. It's, it's this series of sensations. If you do not add the concept of I to it, 
it's not going to be there because the self in the first place does not exist. It's merely a concept which we project. So if the mind is silent, if the mind is silently observing the pain, just sitting back, pain in, pain in, pain in, you'll get a feeling for what, for what that kind of detachment is. Does that help? No. No. <laughs> Okay. One, one common problem with observing pain is that because it's unpleasant feeling, we have aversion towards it. The unpleasantness conditions the aversion. And that's often expressed, we feel pain here, and we tense the body someplace else. Okay? Tense the eyes. The first thing to do is, if that happens, to be very aware of it and to relax. Okay? Make sure the whole body's re relaxed and not reacting to the pain. Then with that very relaxed attitude of mind, simply keep your attention on that flow of unpleasant sensations. Okay? Don't think of it in terms of any kind of concept at all. Not leg or not knee. Simply, with a silent mind, be aware of what it is that's happening. And you will experience it as a flow, a current. It's not one thing. It's, that's all. No, right. Don't, don't be don't be in that struggle. When the pain is there, that is the object of meditation. And you can be with it as long as it's predominant. Right. You could spend a whole hour. And I have spent many hours watching pain. You can get enlightened watching pain. Pain is not impure. It's the, it's the state of mind reacting to it, which is Okay, if the aversion is there, then that, that state of aversion should become the object of meditation. And just be mindful of your mental reaction and then back to the pain. It's that business of not backing into a corner from which you're observing things. I'm feeling aversion. Aversion is just a mental process. If it arises, be mindful of it. Let it come and go, and then back to the back to the predominant object. Okay, we'll sit for time is a little short. We'll sit for about fifteen minutes. <coughs> Try and be mindful of the of the preceding volition. Open the eyes. Opening the eyes. Intending to shift position. Shifting. The sittings in these in these group discussions are rather short because we talk a lot. <coughs> it would be good to try and sit for at least an hour a day if you if you're cultivating the practice of mindfulness. <coughs> I would try to build up to it, you know, so you do it at a, at a sitting. Because you do a half an hour and then a half an hour, the mind stays on a more superficial level. No, really after half an hour the mind is first settling down. And rid of the the 
the daily impressions. And that's when you go deep, after, after that superficial stuff is, is cleared out. Without having a watch. Yeah. Without having a watch. Sure. <coughs> I, I use a watch. Right, notice the intention. But after, after some time, you'll get a feel for what an hour is. You know, you'll, you'll pretty much just, just sit for the hour and know it. How do you feel that the for people who haven't been sitting? They're great. The way to, to practice mindfulness is to be mindful. And the more intensive practice you do, the quicker that factor is developed. That's really an individual thing depending on, on your own rhythm. It's good to try and find one time every day and, and use that same hour <coughs> because first you're less liable to miss it. And if you know at this time you're going to sit, you get into the, the schedule of it. Also the mind gets into the habit of settling down at that hour. It's training. You know, it's so that when, when it comes time to sit automatically, the mind reaches a certain level of equanimity. But if you can sit at that hour, it does not mean that you should skip the hour altogether. You know, then at some other time. Early morning and late at night are nice because the world is very quiet. I used to really like sitting in the hours during intensive periods after midnight, between midnight and three or four, because it's really silent. Some people like the early morning, like it between four and five. But in this schedule, that's a little difficult. <laughs> <For me. laughs> sure, it's a very nice way to to end the day because you know it's a it's a cleansing process. All the impressions that we've accumulated all day long, because of our reacting to them, mostly until we're at a at a reasonably high stage, you know, of awareness. There's a lot of clinging and condemning going on all day long, depending on, depending on the stimuli. All of that ties little knots. The sitting allows the knots to untie. So if you sit every night before you go to sleep, it's like clearing out the day's, the day's stuff. You know? It makes the mind and body very relaxed and free of tension. In the course of an hour of sitting, I've just been for a few, few, few minutes and I'm not thinking one way. It doesn't matter. There should not be the attitude that thoughts are bad. It's the involvement with them. In other words, if a lot of thoughts are coming, that's fine. It's a good opportunity to train yourself in becoming mindful of the thinking process. And at first, that mindfulness is not so strong. You know, when you find yourself well into a thought before you're aware of it. But you keep on watching, you keep on watching, and the ability of the mind, after a while you can pick up a thought, just the first syllable of the first word in the mind, and you're aware of it. Very sharp clarity develops <coughs> through the practice. So don't feel that sitting an hour and a lot of thought is a waste of time, because it's not. It's a lot of stuff clearing out, and it's a very good training in not identifying with the thinking process. You can get enlightened in the middle of a thought. And there's somebody in India whose meditation was very good, 
he was sitting there and he was on his sensations of breathing or whatever. He had, he had a thought and was not involved with that at all. It was an object equal to all other objects. Thinking, thinking, and in the middle of the thought, he had that experience. You know? So it doesn't matter. It's the balance of mind with regard to it. That's what we're after. No judgment of objects. All objects are equal. That's why there's nothing special about any kind of state we get into. You can make all the negative states objects of meditation. No need to condemn them. You can make all exalted states objects of meditation. There's no need to cling to them. They're all part of the passing shell. All coming and going, coming and going. Yeah. Uh, what about um, keeping your eyes open or keeping them closed? It doesn't really matter. Like, the kind of training I've had, it suggested keeping the eyes closed gently, not forcing them closed, just because it's very relaxing. The, some, some of the Tibetan and Zen traditions, they keep them half open, focused a little way ahead. Not, not in so far as not for the purpose of seeing anything, but for the purpose of putting the, putting the eyes someplace. So if you like to keep the eyes open, just focus a little way ahead or on the wall, put the eyes there and forget them. Because the eyes have no function at all in awareness. There's a tendency, for example, if we're sitting and there's a pain in the knee, there's, there's a, a habit to move the eyes there, as if it's the eyes that are seeing it. That movement of the eyes should become the object of meditation. Be aware of it and relax them. The, aware the eyes have no function at all in mindfulness. Okay? The awareness is a mental factor, not, not physical. Um, during meditation, when you notice things, like you say, thinking, thinking, or you say, you know, like, that's being mindful, right? Why does the sort of labeling of that help it disappear? It's not, the labeling is merely an aid to keep the mind on the object. The labeling is very secondary. It's the quality of mindfulness in which you're seeing things come and go. There comes a time in the practice when so much is happening, you, the, the mindfulness is so sharp that it's picking up so many things, there's no time to label. It's like a flood of phenomena happening. And at that time, the labeling falls away. But in the beginning, it's an aid to remember what the object is. The labeling is secondary. The primary, the primary importance is on experiencing what's happening. Right. 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 When I'm walking, I, I'm aware that I'm completely placing a foot, but I haven't transferred all my weight onto it yet. And I don't see how you can just pay attention to just one foot and then the other, because there's a, there's a little bit of overlap. Right. If the mindfulness is sharp and the mind is silent, you'll pick up a lot of things in the body in the process of walking like shifts of weight or feelings of lightness or heaviness. In other words, you begin to pick up more and more things. Our one useful hint in walking is that as you finish with one step, before you lift the other foot, shift the weight. Before lifting the foot. That will fill the gap in between 
and you can add that shifting of weight as an object of mindfulness. So then you're all on, you, all your weight is on the front foot, and then all the attention can be on the moving of the other foot. Okay? And then you bring that down and shift the weight mindfully, and then lift the other foot. It's a good Tai Chi exercise. Hearing is a good object of meditation, and we're going to, towards the end, fill in all these, all the extras. If the mind is drawn to a sound, that can become the object by making a mental note of hearing, not getting involved in what the sound is about. Not that there's a truck going by, and why is he going by, and I'm trying to meditate, and merely with a very silent mind, hearing, hearing. And sound is very interesting because the flow is very apparent. You know, when you listen to music, unless the mind is completely quiet and moment to moment, you miss a lot. If you try to hold on to any one note or any one sound or start thinking, you miss all the following notes. The mind has to be right there with the flow as it's unfolding. And that's very apparent in sound. When you hear a, a sound person, stay very quiet, aware of the whole hearing process, not getting involved in any kind of conceptualization about it. But only do that when it's predominant, because there are a lot of external sounds, background sounds, which could keep the mind occupied. And in the beginning, it's valuable to explore what's going on in the mind and body. So when it's predominant, make it the object. Otherwise, stay, stay inward. Also, uh, Next week, we're going to get into watching that state of mind, making sleepiness the object of meditation, which is very interesting. <laughs> uh, one thing to do for now, if you do a few a few minutes of intentionally hard breathing noticing the intention to do it and then being very mindful of that hard breathing it works in a few ways it works as a kind of pranayama exercise arousing the whole the physical body it also makes the object of mindfulness very clear it makes the object very distinct so the mindfulness gets sharper and mindfulness is a factor of waking wakefulness of mind when the mindfulness is, is sharp you don't feel sleepy <coughs> So it, the, the hard breathings both, both arouse the physical body and make the, the mindfulness very strong, so the whole system gets energized. But do it only for like two or three minutes and then let it go back to its normal rhythm. Um, it really doesn't matter. It's very much an individual. The objects will be different if you meditate before or after. If you meditate before, the object will be lightness. If you meditate afterwards, the object will be heaviness. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you can stay mindful. If you feel that after eating you get sleepy and, and not mindful, then it's not a good time. So you have to experience for yourself. <coughs> as you uh, become aware of your intent, um, and I was just saying how motivation fits in this, uh, are you aware of your motives? And, and very often. It's very interesting, you know, as the mindfulness gets expanded, 
and you begin to see the intentions to act and the various actions that are done, a lot of the previously subconscious motivating force becomes very clear. And it's quite amazing what motivates us. You know, the thing I was thinking of in that context specifically was the question somebody asked Trump the other night and asked him uh, why he drinks alcohol, and he said he didn't know. <laughs> I mean, that's a good, he can say that from truth down to the level that he doesn't even know he exists, yeah. but maybe there's something in between the two levels that, that he could have been more responsive on. I don't know. You know, one... one uh, <coughs> One way of listening to what Rinpoche says, which I find valuable, really valuable, is not so much what he is saying, although often it's, re it's very right on, but really listening to the place it's coming from, which is a very high place. You know, and when he says he doesn't know, the content of that may or may not be exactly correct, but the feeling for where it's coming from, you know, that place of emptiness, is very good dharma. You know, it's a place of not-self, of non, not-I, a place of emptiness in the mind. And you can hear that, you know, if you're not getting too caught up in the actual content of the words, which sometimes are precise and sometimes are not so precise. You know. Eventually, how do you get to the state where when you're just aware of yourself being aware and there's nothing else, how do you get to the state where you're not aware of yourself being aware, you're just aware? There is no self that's being aware of anything. All that there is, is awareness. And, and the mind is not a static thing. It's a flow. And what happens is that in one moment, you can be mindful of the state of mindfulness of the preceding moment. Where sometimes the, the flow of consciousness itself and the factors of concentration and mindfulness, they themselves become the object. Okay? In other words, turning the mindfulness back onto itself and onto consciousness. But there's no, there's no one doing anything. No, mindfulness and awareness are the same thing. Is, does there ever come a point when you're not being mindful of anything? Yeah, nirvana. <laughs> I, no, I, that, was, that was true, but a little... I, I think what you're asking is when the state of apparent duality disappears. It disappears when you get insight into the fact that consciousness, the object, and all the associated mental factors of which mindfulness is one, are arising and passing away at each moment together. In other words, it's not that the mindfulness comes afterwards, which is observing anything. They're all simultaneously happening. And when the mind gets, when the mindfulness, the frequency of mindfulness, is very high, and what you're noticing moment, 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 it gets to a point where it just starts happening by itself, or it's not with that feeling of making an effort, 
You know in the old cars that you had to crank up? You crank and you crank and you crank and you turn once and it starts going. The same, we're cranking up the mindfulness. And it's going to get to a point where it just starts going by itself. And then there's no feeling of duality. It's just the flow of knowing an object and mindfulness right there, just happening along with it. With no one, no feeling that anyone's doing anything. It's just the functioning of that mental factor. Any other questions? Okay, anybody who is interested. There's going to be a month-long intensive retreat in the Sequoia National Forest from September 4th to October 4th, just in this training of mindfulness, done very intensively. Um, it will be held mostly in silence. There'll be there'll be talks, dharma talks. Maybe not every day, but every other day. And meeting individually just to discuss the practice. Um, it'll cost about $130 for a room and board for the month. It's just the, the, the place costs about two and a half dollars a day. It's not, don't expect three seven-course meals. <laughs> Basically, it's two meals and evening tea and fruit or something like that. Um, it's a very good chance to get very firmly established in mindfulness. It's a serious effort. You know, people, you can get enlightened in a month's time. It, the mind gets very powerful with continuous, with continuous practice. You're really building up those factors of mindfulness and concentration to a high degree. So anybody who's interested, it should be done with a certain seriousness of purpose. You have to write to the guy who's organizing it in California. Yeah, his name is Robert Fraser, with an S. And it's box 282. Lagunitas, L-A-G-U-N-I-T-A-S, California. Would you be instructed? Yeah. And I think he wants a $20 deposit so that he can reserve the place that it's going to be. It's going to be in a church camp in the Sequoias. There is, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, does he have um, meditations happening in Las Vegas? No, no. Not that. I don't think so. The town. That's where he lives. That's not where the course is going to be. Uh, can you like, give an idea of like, like here they have 40 minutes sitting and walking? It's going, there's going to be a schedule suggested. There's no, uh, there's no rule and no compulsion, because sometimes you get into your own rhythm, you know, where you may find yourself sitting long, longer than an hour, you know. It's an alternation of sitting and walking. Some people like to walk. They find the walking really easy and the mindfulness good. You can walk for two hours, 
you know, it's just as valuable as the sitting. So an alternative to the proposed schedule will be each person following their own schedule. It's very much going to have to come from each person. Like the style is not that of a Zen Seishin where somebody's standing over you. If people want to do it, fine. If they don't want to do it, that's their business. You know, but then they shouldn't be there really. Should, the, the motivation should come from yourself. The schedule will be probably <coughs> getting up at about four, and then a sitting and a walking, or a walking and a sitting, and then breakfast, and then probably a group sitting, and a walking and a sitting, maybe another walking, and then lunch, and then a sitting, and a walking, and a sitting, and a walking, and tea, and maybe a group sitting and a talk and a walking and sitting and a walking. <laughs> it's really intensive. <laughs> but it can get very rhythmic. You know, if you're right with every moment and letting it unfold rather than trying to make it unfold, it's a very balanced state of mind. It's like you go through the... It's like a great dance. Every act becomes very mindful. It will very much be a slowing down. You know, so everything, eating may take two hours. There'll be a very slow meditative eating. Brushing your teeth becomes a meditation. Everything, from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep, everything should be done mindfully. And the mind gets into the place where you're moving as if in a dance. Every act, very, very aware, very mindful. I'm not sure about your spelling, last name. F-R-A-S-E-R. Any other questions? Yeah, just a question. Um, uh, sort of being immobilized through awareness that, that, uh, that that's far as meditation in action. I understand that with, with the sitting meditation, when the mind moments when your discrimination becomes greater than Labeling can be a hindrance because it's too much happening. Thinking, thinking that I'm aware of sensation. Now, as far as meditation and action, um, it's like I see I'm in a, it's like a point where labeling can flow, but I'm not. My awareness isn't strong enough to keep forgetting. You, it will happen by itself. Use the labels until they fall away. You know. And there'll come a point in movement where there's no need to make the labels. You know, because you're picking up so many things. There may be an interim period, you know, where sometimes sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're not. It's just good to remember that the labels are secondary. It's the experience which is important and they're only used as a help to stay mindful. So as long as they're a help, use them. When they're they're no longer serving that function, they drop away. Do you find like um, here, let's say, living at this pace as opposed to at a retreat, that, okay, let's say you're not doing labeling, but if you're still doing labeling, that there's almost a constant chatter in the mind saying, continue to move my hand, feeling um, sensation in my leg. Right. Ongoing. Right. It's slightly more useful than the other chatter that is usually there. 
it's at least directing the mind to, to the present object. If you find it tensing or, or you know, not useful, then just assume an attitude of general mindfulness. You know, not in this kind of living situation when you're just walking around doing your thing. Try and stay. One really good exercise is to be aware of posture. That's all. Not, not any detailed object. Just when you're sitting, to keep your sitting posture in mind. Not any particular one. However you are, happen to be. When you're standing, keep the posture as the object. When you're lying down, when you're walking. So it's a very big object that doesn't require a lot of focusing, and yet it keeps you centered. So you might try that. When you're standing talking to someone, be aware of the fact that you're standing. The, the value of a general kind of mindfulness is not so much in picking up moment to moment what's happening, but it's a general cover, so that as soon as some defilement of mind enters, it picks it up immediately. In other words, as soon as a, a reaction of greed or of hatred, as soon as that enters the field, the mindfulness is right on it. You know? It's not that it's picking up every single object that's happening, but when a strong defiling aspect comes, the mindfulness is there. And that's a very great protection. We don't get caught up so much then. Um, how do you feel that um, when you just do everyday activities and you're not meditating, to be mindful always, but when you're meditating, you're just about to be mindful. If you practice, the two really are not separated. Um, in the sitting practice, when you're developing mindfulness, you are developing what is called momentary samadhi, which means samadhi on, a cha on changing objects. Right? The samadhi is being developed. Another technique is to develop samadhi on a fixed object. If you practice mindfulness in the sitting, with this development of moment-to-moment -moment samadhi, you will find that the mindfulness carries over. Words, if you're developing samadhi on a fixed object, it's not going to carry over because that object is not going to be present. It's interesting. That's precisely why people who practice just concentration techniques and reach high levels, very high levels of samadhi, you know, when they're in it, the mind is very pure. When they come out of it, Again, they're faced with all the defilements latent in the mind. And there's not much training in dealing with them. Not in, in samadhi you're suppressing. Because what you're doing is focusing the mind on one object and ignoring everything else. You're keeping the mind just here and pushing everything else down. In the practice of insight, it's the attitude of sitting back and letting everything come up and acknowledging it. Because you're not trying to fix the mind on a single object, but just aware of the flow. And that's why insight is the purifying force, rather than concentration. Concentration gives power to the mind, power and strength. Mindfulness brings wisdom and understanding of what it is that's happening. A person with a highly concentrated mind, who then applies it to the development of insight, is very easy. You know, he does not have our struggles of sitting for an hour. 
the mind is very powerful already and can penetrate very easily. But he has to make that switch of, of mental stance, you know. No. Mantra is a concentration technique. Okay, it gives, it gives the mind a single point to concentrate on. For the development of samadhi, it's very useful. For the development of mindfulness, it gets to a point where it will be a hindrance. Because as the mind picks up more and more objects, there's no time to do mantra. There is so much happening in the mind and body that there's no, there's no place to be doing anything except watching. I would suggest for those of you who are interested in, in cultivating a mantra, to take a period of time and do just that, and go to the depth or to go to a deep level of a samadhi exercise. To do a period of time of cultivating insight, you know, but not to mix them it will get confusing. When you're walking up and down the street, would you suggest either alternative to the mantra or the mindfulness? Either one would be all right. Or either one's okay because it's the mindfulness which is important. I think it is valuable <coughs> to be mindful of what is predominantly happening. You know, if you're walking, what the predominant object is the walking. So it's sort of uh, extraneous to look for another object, since that one is already there and predominant. And it's a training in staying. The mantra and the mala are valuable in developing the, the concentration. If you use it as a centering device, and then you go out and leave your mala at home, you know, it, it, it's grown dependent upon an external thing for the, for the development of mindfulness. Which, it's okay. You know, it's, it's a useful thing. It's more basic to just be with what's happening. I don't know if that makes sense to any of you. I'm just trying to figure out how I can integrate the knowledge. <coughs> Try it. Try, you know, experiment. Same. <coughs> Mindfulness and devotion, which I used to be into, don't seem to be coming together. They do come together. Later on. Devotion is one of the five spiritual faculties, all of which have to be developed. But there is devotion on different levels. The first kind of devotion, you know, it's getting late, so anybody who has other engagements, feel free. The first kind of devotion is devotion to, an, to a, another person to a guru. That's one kind of devotion. That can become blind, a blind faith. If the guru happens to be really high and enlightened, usually it goes beyond that. Okay? Next kind of devotion is the devotion which comes from your own experience of things. When you understand who it is that you are and how the processes are working, you have a very great confidence in the Dharma, in the law, from your own experience, not, not on an external object. The highest kind of devotion comes from the experience of enlightenment, because then you've seen. Then doubt is completely eliminated at that first glimpse of, of ultimate truth. 
and then the devotion is unshakable because you, you see it's the latter two kinds of devotion which we're really cultivating the devotion based on our own experience of things and the devotion which comes from the hand. and there are stages in the you know as you walk the path there are very distinct stages of insight you go through it's a very well marked path very well walked upon at one of the advanced beginning stages the mindfulness gets super super sharp the mind gets very tranquil you are filled with rapture and happiness it's not the end it's just the stage at that point the, the factor of devotion is very very strong you are just filled with this devotional quality you want to tell everybody and you, you want to do all these good things you know so it comes into the practice but it has to always stay in balance with wisdom or devotion is not the end it's merely one factor of mind which has to be which is cultivated along the way and you have to get be beyond that stage that's just the stage that you have to go through mm -hmm. so the way I've been feeling is it's all the same path it is just kind of like different places like like the the Hindu kind of devotion they're the same path if the factors stay balanced they're not the same path in other words if you're cultivating just devotion without wisdom then it sort of goes off this way if you're cultivating just the wisdom aspect it can get very intellectual you know if you cultivate just concentration you get absorbed in the object you go into a trance state if you cultivate just effort you get very restless okay so devotion and wisdom have to be balanced concentration and effort have to be balanced it just so happens that the one mental factor which has the function to balance all the others is mindfulness. So if we're practicing mindfulness, if we're cultivating it, it brings all the factors of enlightenment together in balance, which is why it's just at the very heart of, of spiritual evolution. Being aware, being awake to what it is that's happening. And everything, everything comes together in that, in that poised state of equilibrium. It's kind of like uh, when I was before I was trying to have it happen, the devotion. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like if you stay with your experience now, mm -hmm. it happens. It happens. They all develop. Mindfulness brings all the factors of enlightenment to maturity. It, it's like a magnet and it attracts all the proper factors. Mm -hmm. so you just practice and it all comes and they, and they develop. There's no effort required at all to do anything except to stay aware, except to be moment-to-moment -moment mindful. But in the beginning, that takes a great effort. You know? After some time, it starts working by itself. Um, when you notice that you're doing that thought, there's a way that you can uh, not even observe it, but Generally, no. Generally, it's, it's better just to be aware of the fact that you're thinking, but with clarity. It's not a, it's not a cloudy state of mind. It's a very clear and luminous state of mind, which is focusing on the fact that thinking is going on. Right? 
if you find that there are certain kinds of thoughts which keep coming back, you know, at that time it may be useful to really distinguish what kind of thought it is. For example, if you have a lot of planning mind, planning for the future, and your mind get, gets caught up a lot in it, you, know, you don't have the ability to simply be aware of thinking, thinking, then you can focus in even narrower and really notice, oh, planning, planning, planning. You know, dealing specifically with that kind of thought which is which is grabbing the mind. In other words, it's not we're not in the the therapy involved in this meditation is not analysis or rearrangement. It's letting go. It undercuts all problems because we let go of them. There's nothing to solve if we're not holding on. Right? So the psychological level, the, the psychological content level, is not so important. Well, what I'm asking is, um, sometimes I've been to a space where I can be mindful of something, and I can just say, I'm going to do another thought. Whatever content is, not with that, just ignore it. Get it in space, and you can see the, uh, the, when the thought's coming, there's no need to say even silently, oh, there's another thought, or just another thought, because that's sort of a coloring. That's the opaqueness. In other words, don't add that to what's happening. Be very silently aware that thinking is going on. You know, without any, any kind of statement, oh, just another thought. Simply be aware of what it is that's happening namely the thinking process and you will find a clarity in that yeah. it's, it's sort of the balance between not getting involved you will be aware of the content but there won't be the, the involvement with it yeah. you'll see as you practice and as you observe them more and more you'll see all the different ways of, of relating to the, to the thinking process all the different trips the mind goes on with thoughts as the object. The, the key is not identifying with them, not taking them to be self. Simply thoughts coming and going. That's fine. The better a word... Don't do anything. Stay mindful. If thoughts are coming, be mindful. If they're not there, be mindful. It's not the object which is important, it's the state of awareness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.